welcome to episode 109 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Falling down for you, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on, Jesse? Not much. I just tried to switch it up there. Did you like that? I did like that. You know, I, I like the variety. Variety is the spice of life. Also, um, since it's October, nutmeg is also the spice of life. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. We, we did not rehearse that, but I had the sense as soon as you started to go there, I was going to say nutmeg, try to get it at the same time as you did, but you it know. just only happened in my head. And now this is a really anticlimactic account. You know, I'm not going to lie. I'm I'm kind of a white girl when it comes to pumpkin spice everything this time of year. <laughs> okay. So like, okay, what so does this that is even a, mean? This is a little bit uh embarrassing, but the guy at Dunkin Donuts in the morning uh recognizes me by name and by face and like knows me on like a personal level. And the other day I went through and I ordered my coffee and I just wasn't feeling the pumpkin spice for some reason, so I ordered regular coffee. And he like apologized profusely that the app wasn't working correctly. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, oh, well, it came through without pumpkin spice on it. So I just assumed the app was broken and wasn't <laughs> giving you that option. I was like, no, I just want wow. regular coffee today. So yeah, I love me some pumpkin spice, everything, except in honor of Tim Shorey, no pumpkin spice beer. I'm not doing any pumpkin beer this year. So you're really down with all the crazy things now that have become pumpkin spiced? Yeah, and it really it's like I said, it's just nutmeg. But I'm I'm a fan of pumpkin spice this time of year. Isn't it like all spice though? Uh, it, it's I don't like know. a little clove, a little nutmeg, a little cinnamon. Yeah. I, I guess that's pumpkin. I I'm, I'm waiting for like that robust. What it, pumpkin what it really is is it's pumpkin pie flavored things. Right. So like if you go to the store and you buy pumpkin pie spicing to make a pumpkin pie. That's the mixture of stuff that they're putting in everything to make it pumpkin, quote unquote, pumpkin spice. It's actually got very little actual pumpkin flavor involved. Exactly. It should so, be. This is the thing that you put in pie, the spices that you put in pumpkin pie. Yeah, but that just doesn't sound as catchy on a menu. I know. So. Exactly. It's just not as festive. It's not as festive. No. Yeah. I I think we talked about this before, but with things like that kind of flavoring with coffee, it always smells better than it actually tastes. Yeah. Yeah, you're kind of a purist, though, with flavors. I guess so. But, I mean, I know they say, like, 70% of taste is smell. But then that must mean that the other 30% is pretty awful because when you have pumpkin <laughs> spice coffee, yeah. for me, it's not fantastic. Yeah. I don't know. There's some some pumpkin spice flavoring I like, some I don't. Sometimes you get, like, a pumpkin spice flavored coffee from, like, the local coffee place, and you're like, yeah, no, no, no. Straight rump. So, yeah. Can I, ask one, can I ask one follow-up question? Yes. Why Why is that fall within the rubric of the white girl response? It's like an online, it's like a meme joke that like white oh, girls okay. love pumpkin spice. They go crazy this time of year for pumpkin spice. Man, I'm really disconnected. And it, apparently interweb. it's okay to racially profile white girls. But <laughs> anyway. Wow, this really went off the tracks so yeah. fast. Please send your hate mail to I don't care at reformbrotherhood.com. Speaking of mail though. And mail that is not of the hate nature. Yes. We did get this amazing email from one of our listeners. We did. And we wanted to take a whole episode to actually talk about it because it was this wonderfully candid expression of an experience that he is particularly going through, where he has a good friend who, after college, went on the path toward becoming Roman Catholic. 
And this particular writer has been renewed in his faith and has really gone on to embrace the 1689 London Baptist Confession. And they've been having discussions about their faith, and he's kind of been trying to point his friend to Christ, even as he's engaged in the Roman Catholic Church. And so he reached out with, I think, a situation and a series of questions that's actually very common. I think it's happened to all of us, and that is sometimes when we're interacting with those that we love that have different beliefs, that it's first easy to become intimidated, especially if the person with which you're just dialoguing is very skilled in either debate or in argumentation. It can be very intimidating. And then second, how do we explain or really draw distinctions between what someone else believes and what we believe, especially if the the person with whom we're dialoguing really claims there is no difference? So this particular listener had these great questions really in the context of Roman Catholicism. And I thought that would, this would be a great thing for us to discuss because I know, I think we've wanted to talk about this for some time, and this is really a great opportunity to do that. Yeah. And we're replacing this month's heresy cast with this episode, not not necessarily because Roman Catholicism is heresy in the same sense that the other kinds of heresies that we're talking about. Um, you know, Roman Catholicism is an interesting animal because on one level, it affirms all of the same things we do, more or less, um, with the big, broad essentials of Christian theology, right? They have the same basic doctrine of the Trinity, the same basic doctrine of the Incarnation. Um, This is going to sound a little surprising, but they have the same basic doctrine of the Scriptures, um, and they have the same basic doctrine of salvation, broadly speaking, right? So, So... Roman Catholicism affirms many of, if not all of the same things that we do about those things. But what the problem is, is that they usually affirm additional things um, beyond what we do. And we would articulate that by saying that's because they've accumulated things in addition to what the scripture teaches. And in some cases, contrary to the scripture, what the scriptures teach. So it's an interesting animal because, you know, it's not quite accurate to call it heresy, but it's actually probably closer to call it almost like a cult because what it's done is it's taken true Christian religion as represented in the Bible and in the early, probably like the six, six or 700 years of the church. And it's corrupted that into sort of a parasite onto it, just like something like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Islam, something like that, that's taken true biblical religion and has kind of mutated it into something new. That's a good way of saying it, because I think part of what's happened, even among Christians and sometimes among Catholics, is there's this growing sense that, well, we are mostly alike. In fact, you know, all these, there's lots of kind of movements or documents, such as like evangelicals and Catholics together, which was signed in 1994 by a number of prominent Protestants and Catholic leaders. Those kind of efforts have attempted to emphasize that they're only superficial distinctions and they're deep commonalities. But I think what we're going to talk about is it's exactly the opposite and that both sides by their own standards should affirm that that's the case, that they are actually really deep distinctions and only at best superficial commonalities. We use a lot of the same theological language, but in reality, the important question of how a person gets right with God and how to get to heaven, those just by themselves are answered in completely different ways. Yeah. So the questions that were really posed by this listener are fantastic, and we'll go through them, but let me throw them out just so we can get them out at the outset. So the first would be, in our experience, what is the best way to demonstrate to someone that Roman Catholicism preaches a different gospel? And then how would we express that those differences really do matter? And the second question would be, how can somebody feel more confident in standing their ground from a, 
would say like a, a general kind of Protestant Christian perspective, but more, of course, more specifically in the Reformed tradition. So that's yeah. where we're kind of going. I want to answer those two or three questions and kind of bring this into a fully orb conversation that talks about those distinctions and what we think are like some of the really critical distinctions if you had to get in a conversation with somebody and want to emphasize those in, with brevity. Does that make yeah, sense? It does. And I, I want to preface this whole conversation with a statement that kind of echoes something I read in Tom Schreiner, um, who wrote the um, the Justification by Alone entry in the Five Solas series. And, you know, he, he comes at this, um, and I read this in an article in the Evangelical Theological Society Journal, but he basically says, like, people come to me all the time asking me to, like, help save their Christian friend who's thinking about converting to Roman Catholicism from making this mistake. And by and large, he hasn't had success. And my experience has actually been similar, where I am once in a while will get an email or a message on Facebook from someone that says, my friend is thinking about converting to Roman Catholicism. Can you talk to them? Um, And one of the things I have to say is I'm happy to talk to them. But unfortunately, the way that the conversion from Protestantism to Roman Catholicism and conversely, the way that it works is once a person has accepted certain core propositions about Roman Catholicism, there's almost no turning back. Right. And so what, what we're going to find as we talk through this is that the key to standing your ground as a Protestant, the key to kind of pushing back against somebody is a presuppositional apologetic approach that takes those propositions into account. And predominantly the first proposition that, that falls is the doctrine of authority. So, so we'll talk about it, but once a person has begun that, that sort of crossing the Tiber river to, to convert to Rome, once they've accepted that the Bible is not the final authority and they've started to investigate these other sources of authority, um, I don't want to say don't waste your time, but it's important for you to set realistic expectations because if you don't realize that that there may not be any convincing them because they've reached a certain point where c- convincing is no longer a- an option, it's no longer possible, then you're facing a very frustrating, very difficult um, journey. And just like in all apologetics, um, I think in this case, it's actually maybe a little bit more extreme. The, the, the work of the Holy Spirit is key to this. So, so the first thing that I would answer in terms of how do we stand our ground, how do we convince people that, that there are significant differences, and then the sort of third question that I, he didn't ask but I think probably kind of is, is natural is how do we do apologetics to Roman Catholics? Prayer has to be the beginning of all apologetics and especially to Roman Catholics because this is maybe an inflammatory answer, and I don't think we have any Roman Catholics that listen to the show, but Roman Catholicism is not a reason-based system. Right. It's a it's a system that is based on a sort of fideist or or sort of a blind faith, a absolute trust in the words of an authority. Even even Protestantism is not a blind trust in the words of the Bible. We're told to come to the Bible and to engage our reason to understand what the scriptures say. Um, and that the Holy Spirit will illuminate that to us. But in Roman Catholicism, it's actually a sin to challenge or question the official dogmatic statements of the church. Right. So at a certain point, once a person has begun to accept that, they're no longer engaging engaged in rational discussion. And we'll talk about a little bit some of the outcomes that, that come out about that um, in a little while. 
And that's a good place for us to start because we should, I think, speak first about what we think are some of the best ways to at least illustrate that Roman Catholicism preaches a different gospel. And fortunately, I'm able to speak from this with a little bit of experience because I actually have several really close friends who are Catholic. And inevitably, our conversations turn to something about the differences in our beliefs or our faith. And these are friends whom I love and have we have mutual respect. And so the conversations are always great and robust. And so for me, what's been really helpful in bringing a conversation forward that's not more heat than light is to really focus on the essential documents of the Roman Catholic Church. Because right. one of the great blessings, if I can say it that way, is that the Roman Catholic Church has not been shy to articulate what it believes, what its doctrines are. So going to those documents and using those as a centerpiece for conversation, asking questions, how do you understand this? What does this mean to you? Do you believe this? Those are important. And we're going to be quoting, I think, extensively from the Roman Catholic Catechism, which that is a phenomenal document to use as an example, because there, of course, that's the, the whole centerpiece of instruction for life and faith in the Catholic Church. Right. So I would encourage anybody to use those things because that's not inflammatory. Because if we're really just trying to understand each other better and emphasize that there are actual differences, you and I speak regularly and use as a resource the confessions. And so this is essentially doing the other thing out on the opposite side. Right. But using that as a centerpiece, I think, is one of the best ways. Yeah, and and I think that's a really good point is that we're maybe not in exactly the same sense, but we're do, we're dealing with two confessional traditions, right? Roman Catholicism has a documented body of teaching that is established and more or less consistent um, and, and holds even a stronger sense of authority than our confessional tradition does. But we're, we have objective data that we can compare to each other. Right. And the other thing is that our confessions, whether it's the 1689 or the Westminster, um, they were in men, in large part, they were written to refute the false gospel that Rome at least claims that they still teach. So, so our confessions are the best way to point out that what we believe is different because for example, there are several clauses in the first section on scripture, the first chapter on scripture that specifically were written and phrased to contradict or to contramand Roman Catholic doctrine from that era. So, so it's very clear if you just line up, you know, chapter one of the Westminster or the London Baptist Confession with what the Roman Catholic Church says about scripture in the catechism, it's very clear that there's a difference. And that's again, goes back to this idea that we're using a lot of the same language, but we mean different things. And, right. and my thesis is going to be, and I'm, I'm going to guess you're going to agree with me, but my thesis as we work toward understanding some of those distinctions in our conversation is that though we're using similar language, our understanding of the person of God, the nature of sin, the work of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the doctrines of justification, sanctification, the church, the content, authority of the scriptures, and really the Christian mission altogether is very different. Yeah. And we're, we're all going to be able to touch on a couple of those. And since you already brought up the scripture, I think that's a good, really good place to start. And so I think what's interesting is one of just the basic uh, distinctions that's both spiritual nature, but obvious because it's physical, is the content of the revelation in the scriptures. So, right. of course, like canon for, in Greek means or refers to measuring rod. So we're talking about like, what are the authoritative books that God gave his corporate church? And so during the Reformation... The Roman Catholic Church asserted that there were additional books inspired by God which belonged in the canon. So we can start just by saying we're not actually looking at the same Bible, at least in terms of the same books that are included in canon, this authorized compendium of you know God's word that he's delivered to the church. So right. what came to be known as the Apocrypha 
consists of books of Tobit, Judith, additions to Esther, additions to Daniel, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, the letter of Jeremiah, and First and Second Maccabees. So what's interesting to me is that in response, this is what's really fascinating, in response to the reformers' claims that many of the Catholic Church's practices were unbiblical, this Council of Trent, which is like 1545, canonized the Apocrypha, which meant they were, they were deeming it to be the inspired and authoritative Word of God. So just even right here, before we even start about with anything about you know, actual theological differences, we find that one of the easiest things to point out is just that we have a different set of scriptures. I mean, that yeah. seems to me one of the most plainly obvious, right? Yeah. And, and it, you know, the Council of Trent, it's important to understand a little bit about the history of Roman Catholicism, because a lot of the kind of classic claims that particularly Roman Catholic apologists are going to make are things like, well, you know, the, the Protestant reformers removed books from the Bible or they, you know, they contradicted the established teaching of the church and the real, the historical reality of, um, of the Roman Catholic church is that there was actually very little in the Roman Catholic tradition that was established, immutable, unchangeable doctrine until the Council of Trent. And there was no formal dogmatic proclamation on the nature of salvation um, until the doctrine, uh, the Council of Trent. And there was no formal ecumenical statement on um, the nature and the um, contents of the Bible until the doctrine of Trent. Um, and so it's important to recognize that the claims that the, the reformers removed books from the Bible just doesn't hold up, not only because right. there was no formal canon until the doctrine of Trent, but there were several prominent uh, Roman Catholic uh, theologians and teachers, including the one who prosecuted Martin Luther, who actually questioned a lot of the same books that uh, Martin Luther ultimately said were not part of the scriptures as well. So the, the history of Roman Catholic theology is not this unbroken line of theology developing from the apostles on a steady trajectory through to today. It actually has all these sort of fits and starts and contradictory things in, in council decisions and stuff like that. So it helps to pick up a decent um, historical approach to this um, that, that highlights some of these things, because it's not as clear cut as the Roman apologist wants to make you think. Yeah, and the inclusion of these books is not just something that is trivial, because in speaking to kind of the practical outworkings, a lot of what's contained in the Apocrypha is not just add-ons in the sense of, well, this is interesting additional information, but it's actually shaped a lot of the practices in the Catholic Church. Right. And so as, as we go through this, I'm going to try to be as diligent as I can at making reference to either the essential documents we're talking about in the Catholic Church or the Apocrypha itself, so that, we're, again, we're talking about like objective reasoning here in our approach to these distinctions. So for instance, what we find in the Apocrypha that supports different practices is the legitimization of things like prayers for the dead, which happens in 2 Maccabees chapter 12, and atonement by works, which is in Ecclesiasticus chapter 3. So those two things by themselves, you're not going to find in the scriptures as we understand them, but they are present in the Apocrypha, and they're right. consistent throughout that compendium of books. Also, things like the support for the Immaculate Conception of Mary is also in the Wisdom of Solomon in chapter 8. So those, what's interesting is those things, which maybe even the casual observer would understand to be part of the Catholic tradition, 
are only found in the Apocrypha, further leading to that distinction. So in terms of an outworking, that's where all of that practice comes from. You're not finding that, for instance, in like the New Testament. None of Paul's writing is supporting the Immaculate Conception of Mary. So there we have both a distinction in terms of like the actual physical composition of the scriptures, but how, because that composition has changed and has ultimately radicalized, in a sense, this different type of practice among Catholics, and it supports that practice because it's included only in those texts. Yeah. Yeah. And from a, um, from a kind of strategic perspective, um, I'm of the opinion, you know, we've talked in the past about presuppositional apologetics and, and how that functions mostly in relation to the world of atheism, right? We've talked about um, trying to help people understand that, like, even the fact that we have moral standards is not explainable apart from some sort of moral lawgiver. But in Roman Catholicism, one of the things we have to understand is that the only debate that you can have, the only debate that even makes sense to have is the debate about authority. And the reason for that is that if you if you skip past the debate about authority, let's say, and we're, we're going to talk about it, but let's say you go straight to talking about differences in um, soteriology, right? The difference between justification by faith uh, through faith alone and the, the justification through faith and works. If you go straight to that, well, they can't actually come to your position. They can't actually concede that you are correct because their doctrine of revelation and authority has as a presupposition that only their sources have the right and the ability to properly interpret scripture. So you, you have to start in any debate, any debate that goes beyond the, um, the basics of scripture, of the doctrine of authority and the doctrine of revelation is a complete waste of time in the sense that the person that you are debating with is not going to be convinced until you can clear that hurdle. Now, if you're having some sort of formal televised debate, right? Like James White does these debates with Roman Catholics, or you're having an online interaction where there's other people watching, there's value in, in people seeing you kind of take apart their arguments for those other things. But in terms of the convincing the person you're talking to, which we're coming from the framework of one person who's concerned about their friend that they're going to be talking to, you really have to focus on that doctrine of scripture. Because right. there, there's nowhere to go from that. Th- their doctrine, their doctrine of soteriology, their doctrine of the church, all of the other things that we will get to that we disagree on is irreformable in light of their doctrine of scripture. So unless and until you can convince them to reconsider their understanding of how the scripture plays authority in our life, um, the rest of those conversations are kind of a waste of time. Now, you may find that if you erode their confidence in those doctrines, that eventually it kind of does a circle around and erodes their confidence in the church as a whole. But in terms of actual logical priority, you have to start with the doctrine of Scripture. So let's go there, because that's you're right on. So we talked about the content of Scripture being a major distinction. And the second component of that for me would be the authority of Scripture, which you've already right. said. Because the essential question that establishes this distinction between Catholicism and Protestantism is, who has the right to tell people what to believe and how to live? And there's there are different answers to that on the, both these sides. So in Roman Catholicism, we have Holy Writ as the Scriptures and Holy tra- Tradition, and they're both accepted as authoritative sources of divine truth. Right. So Let me quote actually from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This is section 82, which notes, quote, The church, to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reference, end quote. So we have this idea that according to these, and this is a central document again, 
that the spiritual leadership in Rome is given the sole authority to create, institute, and mandate all religious belief and practice for every Christian in the world. So I would hope that any firm Catholic would be looking at this and saying, well, this is definitely a distinction because we're holding tradition and the scripture with equal weight. And that's very different from even the Reformed tradition, which sees value, of course, in what's happened historically, but does not consider them to, to be of equal weight. We, yeah. we should probably also point out that as we look at some of these essential documents and quote from them, that there is somewhat a conflict here in understanding how to associate with these documents. And what I mean by that right. is, let's say if I come to you and say, I'm a vegetarian, you, you know by definition that that is a particular term that has a particular meaning. And generally that meaning is you do not participate in the consumption of animal proteins. Now, if I come to you and say, I'm a vegetarian that eats beef, I've now created a whole separate category. Right. And I cannot be judged by the strict definition of vegetarianism because now I fall outside those bounds. Right. So what we're talking about here is basically what the Catholic Church has put forward as their particular distinctives in terms of doctrine and faith and belief. But anybody who steps outside of those and then disagrees with these fundamental documents is now creating another category. And it would be very difficult to judge and say, well, no, my Catholicism is basically the same as Protestantism when you do not conform to what the Catholic Church defines as its own set of doctrinal beliefs that define Catholicism. Yeah, a handy example, and this is a true example, is the the Roman Catholic position on abortion, for example. Um, A person who knowingly participates or um, assists in the participation or enables the participation of an abortion is automatically excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. And what that means is not only um, are they at odds with Roman Catholic theology, so by definition, they are not Roman Catholic in their theology, but they are actually automatically removed from the institutional hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, Rome doesn't enforce that uniformly or at all, as far as I know. But um, every politician who claims to be Roman Catholic but then votes for a pro-choice bill is, in effect, excommunicating themselves from the Roman Catholic Church. Exactly. And and the other – the doctrines – um, so let me back up a bit because there's there's a different conception in Roman Catholicism by, by what we even mean by the term doctrine. So in Roman Catholicism, there are basically three categories of theological statements. There's a, a position that is more or less called a theological opinion. It's a statement or a position that the church has not formally ruled on. Um, and doesn't have a position on. So the Roman Catholic Church understands and acknowledges there's all sorts of areas of theology that they have not made a formal statement on. You are more or less free in Roman Catholic uh, Roman Catholic theology to believe whatever it is you want to believe in about those things. You, you can believe whatever thing, whether crazy or not crazy, in line with the majority of the church or not in line with the majority of the church. If it's a theological opinion, then there's no, there's no boundaries. Um... Then there's a level that's called doctrine, which is sort of rises to the level of a. The church has made a formal statement. They've they've defined um, in broad terms what what the church believes about a particular theological question. But if you disagree with it, you are disagreeing with the church. But that's acceptable at a certain a certain level. Um, and then there's dogma, and a dogma is something that the church primarily through, um, at least since the 1800s, primarily through the office of the papacy, has defined as mandatory belief for all Christians everywhere. 
Um, and that that what's interesting about that is what exactly those things are. So the doctrine of the Trinity was never formally dogmatically defined by the by the Roman Catholic Church. Right. Um, the doctrine of exactly how the the hypostatic union works never formally defined by the by the um, Roman Catholic Church. They they more or less accept the definitions of Nicaea and trend or and. Um, uh, Chalcedon, um, but they've never used this, the sort of formula that they laid out as far as what, what words have to be used to formally define something. The, the main things that have been dogmatically defined by the Roman Catholic church, um, transubstantiation in the mass, uh, the right. Marian dogmas of, uh, the immaculate conception and the bodily assumption of Mary, um, and papal, uh, authority and infallibility in certain contexts. Yes. So those, those four things have been dogmatically defined in a way that to disagree with them is actually to exclude yourself from the Roman Catholic church. Um, so it's important to understand that a person who claims to be Roman Catholic, but says like, well, you know, I'm Roman Catholic, but, you know, I think that the, the Pope is probably wrong about most things. Yes, the Pope can be wrong. The, the infallibility of the Pope is not a universal infallibility. But I know people that would disagree with the Pope on the Marian dogmas. I know right. people who claim to be Roman Catholic who would say, well, no, of course, of course, Mary was sinful. Of course, she had sin in her life. She's a human, just like anyone else. Um, those people are not Roman Catholic. They claim to be Roman Catholic, but they're actually Roman Catholic in the same way that a Jehovah's Witness is a Christian, is they claim the label, but because of the way they've defined terms, because of their beliefs, they've excluded themselves from the definition of what it means to be Roman Catholic. Right, and that's where this distinction about the authority of Scripture starts to actually really make a difference in life. Right. So to go back to that catechism again, in section 100, it reads, quote, the task of interpreting the Word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church, that is, to the Pope and the bishops in the communion with him, end of quote. So that's speaking exactly what you're just saying here, is that because of that understanding, which becomes presuppositional in nature— then we have a totally different understanding of where divine authority comes from. So in fact, like in 1870, which is at the first Vatican Council, that's where it was the decree that the Pope can speak ex cathedra, which means from his chair. And in that sense, he's speaking on behalf of God, meaning that his words are infallible. So right. the magisterium then has added all these doctrines. That's, I think, what you kind of referenced in the beginning of our conversation. And those include the Immaculate Conception, Sumption, and Mediatorial Office of Mary. Mary is like another savior, another redeemer, redemptrix. And that's in section 491, 966, 969, papal infallibility, purgatory, baptismal regeneration, uh, the mass, transubstantiation, indulgences, the mandated celibacy of the clergy, all those things. We'll probably have to put some of these in like show notes, which we never actually do, but I have references for all of those things. Those are all stated in the catechism. Um, and, and not only that, but one of the most surprising things to me, at least, when I started to look into this is that according to section 2142 of the Catechism, an example of this kind of magisterium mandate is that the Roman Catholic Church has really removed the second of the Ten Commandments. And this should make sense to us when we understand some of the practice. So to maintain the number of Ten Commandments, what they've actually done is they've broken up the last commandment into two. Right. And the second commandment, of course, which prohibits the worshiping of cards, carved images, has been removed, allowing for the regular practice of the veneration of images and statues, and that's in section 1161 of right. the Catechism. So again, here we have these distinctions, but they're not just, they're not subtle, and they're, they're not mundane. They actually shape behavior and practice. Right. 
And and maybe what we can do is we can drill down to the specific the the core difference between the Roman Catholic doctrine of scripture and the Protestant doctrine of scripture is that for Protestants, at least well, I, I shouldn't say all Protestants, for for confessional Protestants, confessionally reformed Protestants, scripture is authoritative because it's God's word. Scripture right. has authority because it is God breathed. It is God speaking to us directly. It's it's not um, it's not it doesn't become the word of God when it's faithfully interpreted in the community. It doesn't become the word of God, you know, when we're experiencing it as a group, which is kind of Bardian theology. Um, it doesn't become the word of God when the Holy Spirit invests special meaning into it, which is kind of classic liberalism. It is the word of God in itself. And, and that's because of its origin, which is from God. Now, Roman Catholicism believes that the scripture is authoritative, not because it's the word of God, which they affirm, but it's authoritative because the church, which is God's vessel on earth or God's authority on earth, has declared it to be authoritative. So the fact that it's God's word, the fact that it's God speaking to us is not something they reject. But this is astounding to me. That doesn't make it authoritative. So right. for them, God, God can speak to you. And that's not authoritative unless the church confirms it. And this, this, um, this lines up with their doctrine of like rev- extra biblical revelation in, in terms of like Marian apparitions, right? So they have this whole um, apparatus and mechanism for determining whether like a vision of Mary or a vision of one of the saints is authentic. Is they're not going to deny that you saw the Virgin Mary and that you actually saw the Virgin Mary. But that vision of the Virgin Mary or of of one of the saints, whoever it might be, that vision is not authentic or authoritative until the church says that it is. And that, and that, that has nothing to do with whether or not it's real. It has everything to do with whether the church has confirmed it. And they view the scriptures in the same way. So it's not as though they look at the scriptures and go, well, this is just a human-made composition. And um, so we're going to invest authority into it because we find it to be the truth. They're actually saying that the words of God, direct words of God through the apostles, don't have authority until they say it does, which is a major, major departure from the the biblical theology of inspiration, the early church and the, the medieval church, the early medieval church's theology of inspiration. This is a major departure from that. Right. I mean, there's so much wonderful deep plumbing that can take place in just this talking about scripture, both in its content and authority. So I'd encourage anybody, I think that's one of the, perhaps the best place to start because that's going to shape all the other ones. But let's talk about another second distinctive, I think that's also important, which would be something that we've kind of discussed before on this cast, which would be the definition of grace. Talk about a word that we both use, but we mean very, very different things. So for the Roman Catholic church, grace is really this I hate to call it this, but kind of like a thing. It's like a force of divine power that's bestowed on believers to accomplish spiritual tasks. And sometimes at the best of the Pope, that grace can be given to those who want and pursue it. And it really only saves a person in so much as it enables someone to become holy and so to earn their salvation. So Roman Catholicism is built on this notion of obtaining this spiritual substance called grace. And the way to obtain the grace of God is through various means of grace, which they know as sacraments. So this is a very different definition than what we're talking about. Yeah, and so some people probably turned the show off when I said that our doctrine of soteriology is not all that different. And the reason I say that is because the 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 apparatus the mechanism by which we are saved in Roman Catholic and um, Protestant or Reformed theology follows the same basic structure right we have a legal problem 
that legal problem is that we are an unholy and unrighteous people, and we cannot we cannot enter God's presence presence ultimately until we become or can be counted as a righteous and holy people. And so that that basic um, that basic progression from legally unrighteous to legally righteous. Um, ontologically unholy or or corrupt to ontologically pure, that basic process is the same between the two traditions. What's different, though, is how you progress from one state to another. Exactly. So in, in Roman Catholic theology, in, in Protestant theology, you are legally made righteous because God credits you with Christ's righteousness. He looks at you and he considers the work of Christ done on your behalf and he says, I will accept you as righteous only because my son is righteous and he's granted to you his righteousness, right? So it's an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes from without us. And then the Holy Spirit changes us and makes us un- incorrupt or pure or sanctified, whatever the language you want to put around that. In Roman Catholicism, though, grace is this substance. Substance is, I mean, it, here's the problem. Roman Catholicism will talk about it and they'll use the term Grace is a substance that's infused into the soul. But then if you talk about it like it's a substance, they get all up in arms and be like, well, we don't think it's an actual substance. So right. that's what you have to you have to realize when you're talking with a Roman Catholic, especially, and this becomes more problematic, kind of the more educated they are. Roman Catholic theology has this ridiculous amount of fine distinctions such that they're really good at kind of dancing around the critique you're making by just shifting their criticism or shifting their um, shifting their distinction to a different center of gravity in order to like make your objection look silly. But more or less, grace is this substance. It's this ability that's infused into you. And because of this ability, ability that's infused into you, you now have the ability to become actually righteous. And so the difference is that in Protestant theology, we become righteous by receiving, passively receiving the work, the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And that reception is accomplished through faith. So faith is the open hand that receives the righteousness of Christ. In Roman Catholic theology, faith is, is kind of the container that grace, grace fills up. And then you kind of engage your faith in order to um, in order to do works of charity, which then actually makes you a righteous person. You actually make yourself legally righteous through works of charity, through works of love. So there's a there's a similarity, a broad similarity in the contours of of what what salvation is, right? It's it's a move from unrighteous to righteous, and because of that move from unrighteous to righteous, we can now enter into God's presence and participate in the beatific vision. The difference to highlight, right, is the how of how we make that transition. I was going to say, and here again, we have a distinction that's quantitative in nature. So it's it's somewhat plain in the sense that now, not all Reformed traditions will use this word. But if you if I were to ask you, like, well, what would you consider to be the quote unquote sacraments? You'd probably say what? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Right. So we know that the Catholic Church has seven, five more than that. And so even just right there, we have a distinction. But even in those two terms, we have vast distinctions. So for instance, like the Holy Eucharist, which would be considered the Lord's Supper, without getting into all the stuff about transubstantiation, is where Christ is re-offered up as a non-bloody sacrifice, and the benefits of Calvary are perpetuated and applied to the life of the believer. And again, if you want resources, you can go to section 1367, 1377, 1382 of the catechism there. That, like we can fill a whole podcast in just the distinction there, right? I mean, in terms of 
what Hebrew says about the finality of the death of Christ, about how without the you know, shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So there's just, just in that alone, could, we could fill an hour talking about. But I just bring that up to say there are plain differences in, in what we're talking about here. Just when we trying to understand how one applies these quote unquote means of grace, so to speak, in terms of their life. Right. Like you said, the journey from going, realizing that we have a, a legal problem before God. Not to mention that it's believed that all these sacraments function, as we said before, like ex opere operato, from right. the work worked. So the sacraments have intrinsic spiritual power that works on their own independently of the faith of the person receiving them. So right. grace is received through the sacraments themselves rather than given by God. And that is a major, major difference. And that has all kinds of outworkings. Yeah. So one thing I do want to clarify, though, is it's important for us um, because nothing turns a Roman Catholic apologist or an educated Roman Catholic off of listening to you faster than misrepresenting what they believe. So when we come in um, and we talk about like, well, you think you're killing Jesus all over again every Sunday. That's that's not actually what they think, right? right. So so Roman Catholic does have this theology of the repeated um, sacrifice of Christ, but it's not a theology which argues that Christ is killed again and again and again. It's more like, and I've, this is the analogy that I've heard Roman Catholics use, it's more like we're transported back in time in the Eucharist to the foot of the cross. And where this, and this is why it's important is because if you, if you harp on that re-sacrifice point too much, you're actually missing the perversion of the mass in doing that. Because what you think the perversion of the mass is, is that we're killing Jesus again and again. And that's not the perversion of the mass. The reason the mass is so sacrilegious and blasphemous, the reason that it is damnable heresy to believe and to participate in the sacrifice of the mass is because what you're doing is instead of Christ once offering up himself a sacrifice for sin to reconcile us to God and satisfy divine justice, what's happening is sinful human men are offering Christ as a sacrifice right. on the cross to G to the Father. Um, well, not to the Father. That's a mis a mis uh, calculation there, but. It's the the sinful human priest who is offering the son up. Now that that gets into a whole other question of who is who are they offering the son up to? Because they they would reject the theology of penal substitution, which means that Christ is being offered up to the Father. But nevertheless, the reason that it is so blasphemous is because instead of Christ operating as our mediator, Christ operating as the one who offers Himself up as a sacrifice. It is the the priest in front of you on on a Sunday morning or any other day of the week, um, who is actually committing the sacrifice. So, so we've taken the work, and this is a common theme that we're going to see in Roman Catholic theology. We've taken the work of Christ and we've made it the work of the church. We've taken the sacrifice of Christ who offers himself to the father as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. And we've made it the work of the church through the priesthood now that commits that work. And the, the, the church subtly replacing Christ, and sometimes not so subtly replacing Christ. That is where we find that Roman Catholicism is another gospel. That's the core problem right. that Roman Catholicism has. And the reason for that, and this is this is key, is that in Roman Catholicism, the church is the ongoing incarnation of Jesus Christ on earth. 
So, so sometimes Protestants speak that way. We talk about like, well, we're the hands and feet of Jesus when we do missions or we're, we're the body of Christ on earth. Sometimes we're the only Jesus anyone ever sees. And that's why that kind of language just makes me clench my fists and want to scream because that's Roman Catholic theology. They don't mean it in a abstract metaphorical sense. They mean it in the most literal sense that the church is the actual incarnational presence of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. And that's why the, the Roman papacy and the priesthood that follows out of it is the ongoing work of Christ. So there's this constant, right, authority, right? The scriptures are in process of the scriptures are authoritative because they're God speaking. Well, who is the, who is God speaking in Roman Catholicism? It's the church. So the church gives the scriptures their authority because the church is God speaking authority into the scriptures. Who is it that commits the sacrifice? Well, it's Jesus, Except in Roman Catholicism, it's actually the church. And, and that gets embodied in Mary. And that the problem is Protestants get so hung up on Mary as like this supreme example. And she is. She is the embodiment, pardon the pun, although it's probably not that much of a pun. He, she's the embodiment of this, this mistake that Rome makes, that the church has replaced Christ. The church, the Roman Catholic church, has replaced Christ as the agent of salvation on earth. And that's that's what it all boils down to. Right. That's it. That's really well said. So let's go into at least like one final distinction, which really kind of culminates in a lot of what we talked about, both in terms of this difference in scripture, understanding scripture, content, authority, and then grace. And the last would be wrapping that all up in the sense of justification. Right. So according to section 1992, again, of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, quote, justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith. It conforms us to the righteousness of God, who makes us inwardly just by the power of his mercy, end quote. So the distinction is instead of being a one-time legal declaration, which we, we typically talk about it in Reformed theology, justification is believed to be a process of becoming righteous through a joint effort of God and man. And I'm not taking that out of context because justification is expressed in the next section of the catechism as, quote, justification establishes cooperation between God's grace and man's freedom, on man's part, it is expressed by the ascent of faith to the word of God, which invites him to conversion, and in the cooperation of charity with the prompting of the Holy Spirit, who precedes and preserves his ascent, end quote. Yeah, and and that's important for us to remember, is that, you know, Alistair McGrath um, wrote a, as his doctoral dissertation, this volume on justification. And this is a quote that gets used by Roman Catholic apologists all the time, and he argues that the 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 Protestant doctrine of justification is a theological novum, meaning that it's a, a new theology that was never seen before in the church. Now, what McGrath didn't mean is that justification by faith alone is new. What he meant is that the distinction between justification and sanctification, which the reformers, that was one of the central insights of the Reformation, is that justification and sanctification are, are not the same thing. They're not two ways to speak about the same process or even two ways to speak about two parts of a process. They're distinct things that happen coterminously. So our justification is the beginning of a process. It's a point in time that happens with a legal declaration of, of God. Our sanctification is the work of God. It's the work of God's spirit throughout time to, to conform us to the image of Christ. Those are different things. Now, right now, it's not as though we can separate them in time, right? Our justification happens at a point in time and our sanctification begins at a point in time. And there's a such thing as positional sanctification, which also happens at a point in time. 
But Roman Catholic theology holds that justification is actually the same thing as what we talk about when we say glorification. So when we say glorification, we're talking about more or less, we're talking about the final result where we are made completely perfect and perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Right. And that's, that's language out of the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Catechism. Roman Catholic theology, if you were to ask them, what's the word you use to describe the, the, the state where a, a believer is made perfectly holy and enters into the full blessing of the full enjoyment of God? They would say final justification. Justification is the state that we reach at the end of the race where we finally become this legally righteous thing, this legally righteous person. So even the language that we're using is different, but more or less they're arguing, and this is not an exaggeration, that we become justified because God makes us, uh, God gives us the ability to do good works that can justify us. Right. right. And that, so, so it's not quite right to say that, um, that God is absent from the process. Sometimes zealous Rome, uh, Roman uh, reformed apologists will say like, we, it's entirely a work of man. We entirely work our way to salvation. But the reality of it is, is that, and, and you know, you can find this in Augustine. Sometimes people don't like this, but this is a, this is an Augustinian doctrine, right? Now, Augustine's not always consistent. And as he got older, as he reached the end of his life, he started to articulate theology that was more and more like Reformed theology, more and more Protestant. But earlier in his life, he argued that what grace does is it gives us the ability to do works that, that, that propel us to salvation, to do works that, that make grace is God accepting our works as meritorious when they are not in themselves meritorious. And so for the Roman Catholic, what happens is God's grace not only enables us to do good works, but he kind of looks the other way, right? We give him this work that's not perfect. You know, it's kind of like the kid who brings home like a really junky art project and mom puts it on the fridge anyways and is really proud of it. That's the Roman Catholic understanding of of salvation by works is that we offer to God these fallible, broken works and he he accepts them on a certain level as righteous, right? This is encapsulated in right. like moral, moral governance theory, like Abelard's theology of moral governance, where God basically relaxes the requirements of the law. That is 100% diametrically opposed to, re- to Reformed theology, where although God accepts our works and is pleased by our works only for the sake of Jesus Christ, right. those works never, ever become meritorious. We never gain anything spiritually because of our works. And that, you know, we've talked about sanctification being monergistic and this, this plays into it is that we don't believe as reformed Christians that we make ourselves holy any more than we believe that we make ourselves righteous in doing good works. It's all a work of God. And and we respond to that work and there are consequences to that work, but we never, ever, ever believe that we can have meritorious works of any kind. Right on. And in terms of probably like distilling that down and articulating it with some kind of more highfalutin, so to speak, theological language, we could speak about the instrumental cause of justification for right. each of these belief systems. So by, I think we talked about this before, but by instrumental cause, we're talking about the means by which something comes to pass. So right. for example, the instrumental cause of a sculpture is the means by which a raw block of stone is transformed into a statue. So that would be the hammer and the chisel. Right. So for the Roman Catholic, the Roman Catholic church believes that the instrumental cause of justification is the sacrament of baptism. And the righteousness of Christ is poured into the soul of the one receiving baptism. That's what you referred to before as this process of the pouring of the grace into the soul or an infusion. 
And so in order for one to become righteous, one must then cooperate with that infused grace. So people must assent to it such that the, a degree of righteousness is achieved. Right. And as long as people keep themselves from committing some kind of mortal sin, they remain in that justified state. Yep. But if you commit a mortal sin, it, that's bad enough to kill the justifying grace that a soul possesses. So those who commit a mortal sin lose the grace of justification. That, of course, leads to this idea of having to do penance. So that right. stands in opposition to then what we call the Reformed Instrumental Cause, which would be we're holding to this justification by imputation. So for Protestants, and especially for those in the Reformed tradition, the ground of justification remains exclusively the righteousness of Christ. Not the righteousness of Christ in us, but the righteousness of Christ for us. Right. The righteousness that Christ achieved in his perfect obedience to the law. So that's a major point of distinction. And of course, it influences our behavior. How could it not? If, right. I, if my understanding is that I receive from grace, some grace from Christ, but I must ascend to it both in terms of my mind and my energies, then I am in a way cooperating with God. That means I must earn my own righteousness, like you said. Actually, did you say putting a junky picture <laughs> drawn by a child on a fridge? Yeah, like a crappy picture. Uh, did you say junkie though? So so here's the story, right? I have this um I have this sculpture that I made. I must have been in like 7th or 8th grade, right? So we're talking like 12 years old, 13 years old. And I started off making the picture, making the sculpture, and it was supposed to be a kangaroo. So it's got okay. like the sort of the structure of a kangaroo. Um no no, I started off making an armadillo. So it's got kind of the structure of the armadillo and it's got this head of the armadillo. And I drew like lines on the back to look like the sort of lines of the armadillo shell. But somewhere through the middle of this sculpture, I decided that it was a kangaroo. And so I actually made like a second kangaroo head coming out of the stomach, like out of the pouch. And for some reason, like I can say this is objectively a terrible sculpture. <laughs> objectively, it is terrible. It's it's awful. It looks like it looks like a seventh grader made it because a seventh grader made it. But my mom loves this sculpture. She absolutely loves it. It's displayed prominently in her home. And so the difference between um, the difference between Roman Catholic theology and Reformed theology is in Reformed theology, it functions like my mom here, right? She looks at it and she says, this would not be something that I would appreciate in any sense. It would actually probably offend my sensibilities if it were not for the fact that my son made it. Right. And so when we come before God as as the adopted heirs to his kingdom and we we present good works that are fallible and mixed, they're mixed. Right. They're, they're a mixture of sinful intentions and, and righteous intentions. God accepts them not because they're intrinsically good, but because he loves us and because he has considered us to be right. his sons. in Roman Catholic theology. A similar thing is happening, except um Except it would be like my mom, my mom would have to love me more because I brought this sculpture home. So it'd be like, um, I was, you know, my best friend brought a sculpture home and it somehow increased my mom's affection for my best friend because I said, you know, you really should accept this sculpture. That's Roman Catholic theology. Our, our crappy works are accepted by God and his love is increased for us because of our crappy works, because somehow Jesus' sacrifice on the, Christ, on the cross has made it so. And so Roman Catholic theology explains that in different ways, but that's really when you boil it down, what's going on. Christ has said to the Father, you know, I died on the cross for these people, so you really need to accept, you know, you really need to accept their works as meritorious. I mean, that's a character, but that's more right. or less what's going on, is right. the Father's going, yeah, I, I mean, it's not really that great, but I guess I'll accept it as meritorious. 
Right. Because Jesus yeah, you're asked exactly me to. Right. And and even more so, not because Jesus asked me to, but because Mary asked Jesus to ask the Father to. So right. that's where we get into Mary. So I mean, we could go on and we probably will somewhere down the road do another episode of this because this is an ongoing thing that especially reformed Protestants who desire to be part of the Catholic tradition of the the whole church. Catholic like Ro- not Roman Catholic, Catholic Catholic, actual universal Catholic Church. Right. We will constantly be butting up against Roman Catholicism because of these universal claims that both traditions make. So, so you know, Mary is a whole different animal. Um, the the cult of the saints, the veneration of images, the way that um, petition and prayer works, all of those things are significant, substantial differences. But at the end of the day justification in the Roman Catholic system is about doing enough good works to make yourself permanently righteous. Right on. And if you, if you don't do enough in this life, then you're going to suffer in purgatory and you're going to earn your way into heaven the rest of the way through purgatory. So, um, you know, we're, we're coming up to our time. This is one of the few times I'm actually going to do it. I have a ton of resources that I'm going to put in our show notes. Um, there's there's several books that we're going to recommend that I'll recommend. We'll put in the quotes um, that Jesse has put in and the references to that. I did a debate with a Roman Catholic uh, probably, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago on justification by faith alone. And then we did another debate on purgatory the following year. So I'll put both of those up. Um, I hope that they're helpful. But it's important you know, and this is the last thing I'll say. This question I'll start it off with um, and sort of became, how can I feel confident when I'm um, when I'm having these discussions? Because Roman Catholic theology is intimidating. And on one level, you know, the, the answer is not all that surprising. Know your scriptures, study your scriptures, understand your scriptures, depend on the Reformed confessions and the Reformed catechisms to help structure that, right? The, the, the most accurate statements that I've made tonight have been the times that I've quoted the confessions or the catechisms, because those are men who are way smarter than I, who had way more time to devote to study, who formulated these things and who understood Roman Catholicism better than I can or better than anyone else in our era really does. So, so it's not complicated, but it is, it does, does take hard work. Right on. There's so much more that we could say. I wish we had a lot more time to continue this discussion. and Maybe we will in the future. I totally agree with you. I think the first place you can start by trying to be more confident is to understand the presuppositions of that particular worldview, because that's going to shape everything that follows. And as you said, to continue to pray and to be in the scriptures and to ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten and illuminate and to guide in those conversations. And I think part of being confident is starting by asking lots of questions. Jesus was always good, you find, in his ministry at asking questions, both to find an entry point for the conversation, but also to make sure that the person with whom you're speaking understands that you're actually willing to listen to them as a person. Right. And so I think by bringing some of these essential documents into the discussion, asking questions, I think you're going to start to develop on your own in the course of that dialogue that there are actually distinctions. And you can even then quote from the confessions that we were talking about, Westminster or the London Baptist Confession, and bring to bear how there is actual differences in in what you believe. And then from there, perhaps start to kind of chip away at some of the presuppositions that under are underneath all of those different contentions, all those different doctrines and dogmas. But I would encourage everybody 
to continue to have these types of conversations to that, even though it can be intimidating, I think that what we find is that intimidation sometimes is the, the best motive because what it does is it reminds us that in all things, when we're trying to go forward and explain the gospel, that it is, does not rely on our ability to articulate it with perfection or to defend it with the best argument, but that really the power of the gospel is the spirit of God. Yeah. And so this reminds us that we cannot just rely on our own intellect, our own creative abilities to create, create or craft the best presentation, but that we ultimately should be driven to our knees because that is the only way that we were able to receive the gospel and the only way that anybody else will be able to receive it. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to close out with a quote from the the, the larger catechism here. And it's, um, it's pertinent to this conversation because of what you just said. So um, question four reads, how does it appear that the scriptures are the word of God? And the answer is the scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts, by the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, by their light and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. And this is the key part. But... The spirit of God bearing witness by and with the scriptures in the heart of man is alone able to fully persuade it that they are the very word of God. So I want to close this conversation with just a re-emphasis of the fact that as hard as we try, as much as we may study and learn, um, on one level, this is probably a little frustrating, but it, it's also a source of immense hope and comfort is that, you know, this listener is going to have, if he continues these conversations with his Roman Catholic friend, or as you continue your conversation with these Roman Catholics you're dialing with, it is frustrating. It's difficult and it's frustrating because a lot of times you don't feel like you're making any any uh, progress. And frankly, most of the time you're not. But that is not something we have to feel guilty about or something that we have to feel like we need to try harder or we need to um, work harder. Now we have to, we have to be diligent, but ultimately it is the spirit of God through the scriptures, through the testifying with and by the scriptures that convince the sinner that the scriptures are the word of God. So, so don't get discouraged. Don't feel like you're a failure. If your friend converts to Roman Catholicism, you know, I've said it before this podcast was born out of another podcast that failed because my co-host converted to Roman Catholicism. And and that person was a an admin in the Reform Pub. And, and there was all sorts of conversations where we had tried to do strategy sessions to figure out how do we how do we snatch Devin from the fire? How do we snatch him from the fire and save him from making this mistake? And at the end of the day, we do not do that. That is only the Holy Spirit of God who who is who is able to do that. So don't get discouraged. Continue to pray. Prayer has to be your first step. Continue to pray and trust that God is going to is going to save those whom he has chosen to save. And all that we have to do is be faithful to his command. I like that little old brief saying, when we work, we work. When we pray, God works. Yeah. Yeah, that's the truth. No more super true in this case. So if you'd like to get in on the conversation, we hope that you would lend your voice to us and you can do that by leaving a voicemail at 607-444-2767. Bros. <laughs> you got some very white action on that one. I tried, man. <laughs> that was real deep. Or you can email us at info at reformedbrotherhood.com. Yeah. And we, you know, we exist, um, we exist to serve the church, uh, 
through those who listen to us, right? So this this episode was born out of someone who had a problem, had a question, and we would love to be able to do more episodes like this. You know, we do Absolutely. question casts every month, um, and those are great for kind of those questions we can answer in 10 minutes. But if you have a question that you think is too big for a question cast, please do not hesitate to call or email us because we would love to be able to help you explore what you're trying to figure out through an episode on the show. I love it. Let's do it yes. again. Let's do it. All right. Well, that should just about do it. Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Bye.